Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, I was telling the folks earlier that um, most of my family now lives on the east coast of the United States. Two of my kids, six of my grandkids, they're all out on the east coast, so I don't get to see them very often. But we get together once or twice a year, and, 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 and we get, you know, I head out there, they come out here, and we all head in, and we sit down. And in 20 minutes, a half an hour, we're catching up, we're laughing, we're talking, giving each other a hard time, having an argument, you know, all the things that families do. And uh, uh, that's the neat part about family. Even though you're separated by thousands of miles and maybe months at a time, when you come together, you're family. And that's the way I felt this weekend when I came back to Big Valley. You know, I've been gone for a while now, but I come back through these doors and you guys make me feel welcome. And I just felt like I came home. And to all of you that have hugged me and wished me well and encouraged me, I just want to say thank you for that. It's good to be at Big Valley. This is an amazing church. And uh, you are an amazing people. You are what make this a great church. Thank you for that, guys. Yeah, thanks. No, I mean it. Blaise Pascal was a uh, French uh, philosopher, mathematician, theorist, scientist. Uh, he was a pretty smart guy. He lived from like 1623 to 1662, like 39 years. But in this time, he's thought of being one of the most brilliant men of his time. And uh, he was a believer. And in uh, uh, in his brilliance, he did some, some great things. He's credited with developing the mathematical algorithm that is, uh, was used to develop computer languages today. So in the 1600s, he wrote a mathematical algorithm that was used in the 1900s to develop computer languages. In fact, one of the first computer languages out there is called Pascal. And uh, he did lots of other things. As a philosopher, he wrote this, this big, thick book uh, of what's called thoughts. Pensées was the word that's used. I think it just translates thoughts. And Pascal just wrote a bunch of different thoughts about all these different things of life. And he wrote one that was called Faith's Wager. Some call it Pascal's Wager. Uh, but Faith's Wager is an argument in philosophy that posits that humans bet with their lives that God either exists or he does not. We bet with our lives. And as Pascal formulated this thought, he, he uh, started out with some observations. Uh, I'm going to call them some uncertainties. And so he's talking about now life under the sun. As we look at our little screen there that, shows, that says that we're in Ecclesiastes and we're looking at life from that view of life under the sun, okay, in a sense, life without God. And he said there is an uncertainty in all. Okay, that's the first thing that Pascal said. There's an uncertainty in all. And he said, this is what I see and what troubles me. I look on all sides and everywhere I see nothing but obscurity. Nature offers me nothing that is not a matter of doubt and disquiet. In nature, just under the sun, we can't know anything for certain is what he's saying. He said, there's an uncertainty in man's purpose. For after all, what is man in nature? A nothing in relation to infinity, all in relation to nothing, a central point between nothing and all, and infinitely far from understanding either. 
on this earth, on planet earth, we can't really know our purpose just on planet earth alone. What is it? What are we all about? Why do we exist? What's our point in eternity? He said there's an uncertainty in reason. I love this. There is nothing so comfortable to reason as the disavowal of reason. Okay? And what he's saying is, is look, we, here I heard somebody, they give this reasoned argument or make a reasoned point, and they make their point, they give you their supporting logic, it all makes sense, and they come to this conclusion. And you go, wow, that makes sense. And somebody else makes their reason, their, their, their statement, their points, they come to this conclusion, you go, wow, that makes sense. Yet they both totally disagree with one another. You know, a reason in and of itself will not answer the important questions of life. It can't. He says there's an uncertainty in science. He said there's no doubt natural laws exist. But once this fine reason of ours was corrupted, and he's talking about the fall at this point, it corrupted everything, even our ability to comprehend science. And I'm amazed at what science and, and all the, the different smart people say in the world today. You know, there was a time when eggs were good for you. And then they weren't good for you. And then eggs were good for you. And now egg whites are good for you. I like the yolk. That's my favorite part. They took that away from me. I, I mean, really, literally, over the last 25, 30 years, this argument's gone back and forth. Eggs, bananas, oh, they're horrible for you now. Can't eat a banana. Man, that's terrible. You're going to ruin your kids if you feed them bananas. So, you know, I, really? There's an uncertainty in those things. He says this about religion. There's an uncertainty in religion. And he's talking about the organization of religion. If I saw no signs of a divinity, I would fix myself in denial. If I saw everywhere the marks of a creator, I would repose peacefully in faith. But seeing too much to deny him and too little to assure me, I am in a pitiful state. And I would wish a hundred times that if a God sustains nature, it would reveal him without ambiguity. That, that if God exists under the sun, how can we see and really know God under the sun just from what we see? And then he finishes with the, the statement, there's an uncertainty in skepticism, which actually confirms that the guy had a sense of humor. Okay? He said this, it is not certain that everything is uncertain. <laughs> he lists all these things and he goes, there's no certainty in anything I just said. You can't know those things. See, Pascal is observing life from what we call an ontological perspective, from what we can see, taste, feel, sense, the things around us, life under the sun. And he can't help but come to the conclusion that under the sun, we can't with certainty know anything. We're just not going to get there. Not of the important things of life. And then he asked the question, with God, how does that change? With God, how does that change? And that is his wager. That's his wager. And here's the rules of the game. He had rules of the game. Pascal said this. One, God is or God is not. Reason cannot decide between the two alternatives. Okay? This is not a reasonable argument to determine whether God exists or not. God either exists or God does not exist. It's one or the other. 
Second rule, a game is being played where heads or tails will turn up. We're going to find out one of those is true and one of those is not true. Third, you must wager. It is not optional. We wager with our lives. We wager eternity. We wager our eternity on whether God exists or he doesn't. Let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. And you'll understand what I'm saying here, a little bit more about that in just a moment. And then his, his fifth comment on his wager is, the best bet is to wager without hesitation that he is. That's Pascal's conclusion. And we have this little chart here that gives you a little idea. We're going to take all that he's saying and we're going to take a look at his wager here. And you can see across the top, God exists or God does not exist. And then over here is belief or disbelief. We believe or we do not believe. You kind of end up somewhere in all of that. Okay? Now, if you look at the right, God does not exist. If we start there, he talks about finite loss and finite gain. And, and, and what he's saying is, if God does not exist, we are a blip in eternity. We're a blink of the eye across the expanse of time and existence. And where we came from and we return to is nothingness. It's dust. And so we're going to have a little bit of loss or a little bit of gain, whatever that is. He said with belief there's a little bit of loss. I might disagree with him on that. Even if God does not exist, my faith in Christ has made me a, a better husband, a better father, I think a better man. Um, and so I would say either way, you know, for me personally, I think there's some kind of gain in that. But he says either way, loss or gain, if God does not exist, it's, it's like this. Okay, and after you die in, in a generation, you are forgotten. There's nothing more. But now if God exists, that's where he camps at. That's where he wants to camp out there. So you get to choose belief or disbelief. And obviously, belief in God exists is the win. Okay, that's what he's saying. That's the best wager you're going to make. You're going to believe in God because God exists. He's making that claim. And with that, you have infinite gain. You gain eternity with God. Now, if you don't believe, bummer, dude. <laughs> You've got infinite loss. You're going to spend eternity without God in a place much less palatable. It's not going to turn out well. That's, that's the wager. That's how... Pascal thought through this issue of should we believe in God or not? I, I'm better off for who I am because of my faith in God, one way or the other. Now, I happen to know at the depth of my being that God exists because I've seen the work he's done in my life, and there's nothing that could have done those things outside of him. And so I, 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 I've taken that wager, but Pascal's coming to that point. He's saying, listen, Life without God has little benefit, but life with God has infinite benefit. That sounds a little familiar to me when we look at Ecclesiastes, at this book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is repeatedly playing out these uncertainties, okay? He talks about, he tells us over and over again that life under the sun is uncertain and unfair. Life on planet earth is not fair, you're not going to find that anywhere. 
he posits that there is not much value to life beyond what is here. What you see is what you get. If you are living under the sun, that's it. That's all you got. And life will continue to be that way. Now, before we jump in, I want to put a little context about around wisdom literature. Lonnie last week did a great job of just kind of laying out the life of Solomon and some of the things that, he, that happened throughout his life and how he trended to where he got to this book. But I want to talk about wisdom literature in and of itself because uh, it's different. When you look at the Gospels, they're basically chronological, okay? They're basically chronological. They start at the beginning of Christ's life or advent of his ministry, and they take us up to his death and resurrection, and they tell the gospel story to us. And we know that's from God, of God. And that's one type of literature that we find in the Bible, that chronology. And we see some of that in the Old Testament, the journeys of the people. It's chronological. It takes us through time. Now, there's also uh, um, uh, the epistles, like the Pauline epistles, the epistles, the letters of Paul that's written. Those are structured a little bit different. Paul is writing to people, and, and his tendency was he always started with theology. The first part of his books were theology, and then he goes and he says, here's your application. Okay, so you look at the book of, of Romans, that incredible book that is just complete description of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the beauty of God and uh, how we are saved. Uh, the whole story is right there. If you look at, at, at Romans 1 through 11, builds that theology. He builds that theology for us. And 12.1, therefore, big word, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. And then he goes on and spends the next four chapters telling us how to apply that to our lives. This is the gospel. This is how we apply it. All right, that's, that's the, uh, a very common way that uh, the New Testament is presented. Uh, New Testament teachings are presented to us. But wisdom literature doesn't work like that. And so you can get goofed up with wisdom literature. Wisdom literature tends to be this circular argument. All right? Solomon just comes around and around, uh, around these points. And he really talks about some subjects. And he comes back to them again and again and again. And the point he's talking about, though, is will we find our meaning under the sun or with God? Really? Meaningless versus meaningful is the book of Ecclesiastes. Where, where, where do we find that? Where do we find our true purpose? Where do we find truth? And that's what Solomon's doing. And he just circles around that a few times. So if you're reading Ecclesiastes going through this, you're going to read that and you're going to go, didn't he just talk about that a couple chapters ago? And the answer is, yeah, he did. And he's going to come back and he just drives home those points again and again. Spoiler alert, Solomon is telling us over and over that life without God is meaningless, so enjoy it as best you can, but life with God is meaningful and is much more enjoyable when our hope is in him. That's the objective right there. You can put it all right there. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon builds his case that in and of itself, under the sun, life stinks. Life stinks. It doesn't get very good. It just is what it is. And you can pretty much group uh, what Solomon talks about into four philosophies. If you're living in life under the sun, you know, life without God, you're going to end up in one of these four philosophies one way or another. The first one is 
materialism. We accumulate things because having more will make us happy or comfortable, somehow bringing us contentment. Okay, that's materialism. We live in a world of materialism. He or she who has the most toys wins. Just, just open up the browser on, on your smart device of whatever type that is and what comes up. Oh, there's a story there and 14 advertisements and things come through. You got to do this. You got to have that. If you don't drive this car, you are worthless. Okay? You got to drive that car. You know? I am fulfilled by my automobile. Now, I like cars. And you know what's weird is I bought cars and really that first month, it's like this love affair with my car. And then in five years, it's just a piece of transportation, crying out loud. You know, who cares about that thing? It's weird how these things we think we got to have, how they're going to bring us fulfillment. And then after we have them, it's like, yeah, all right. I need a new car now because the new car has a camera. So when I back up, I can see things. You got to have that for crying out loud. Materialism. Second one is hedonism. Hedonism is just simply pleasure over principle. You are uh, the ultimate end of your pursuits. Enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Hedonism is that, uh, if you will, uh, materialism is about the, the, the pleasure we get in things. Hedonism is about the, the pleasure we experience personally. And Solomon went way out of his way to check out all of those Listen, I, I, I grew up, the first 35 years of my life, I was a hedonist. I did not believe in God. I believed in Bobby. And I was dishonest and unfaithful and unkind. Uh, let me tell you what. Hedonism is a dead-end road. I was a miserable, miserable man. So thankful that God pulled me out of that pit. Amen. Hedonism. Materialism. Hedonism. Third one is humanism or rationalism. You could even group wisdom under that. That's the concept that says, yes, you can. Yes, we can, people. We are smart enough to do this. We have the ability. We're going to get there. We just all pull together. We can pull this thing off called life. Just use your brains. Now, this propensity goes way back. It goes back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Okay, Genesis 11, all the people live in this area called the Plain of Shinar, and they all speak the same language. And so what do they do? They all get together and say, hey, got an idea. Let's build a tower. We'll build a tower all the way up to heaven. And guess who we can be just like? Yeah. If you've read the book, you know how that story ended, and it still is ending the same way. Didn't end well. Look around the world today. Humanism. This, this thing that things are going to get better. The more we, smarter we get, the more technology we have, the, uh, the more we do this or that, whatever that thing is, things are going to get better. How's that working out? Look around and ask yourself, how's that working out in this world today? Not very well. Materialism. Hedonism. Humanism. And then finally, fatalism. And that is just what is, is what is. The game is rigged. The game is rigged. Bummer, dude. You can't do anything about it, so just get over it and get through it. Fatalism. A lot of people are fatalistic. They, they, just, they just go through the motions. They give in. And they have 
not only do they not put their hope in one of those other three things, they just don't put their hope in anything. Those are four philosophies that one way or the other we are, are, are going to embrace. Solomon builds the case that uh, life under the sun, you will either embrace materialism, hedonism, humanism, or fatalism. Maybe you'll embrace a couple of them. I, I don't know. And that's where we're going to pick up our study in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I'm using the NIV. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in the NIV. And you can change your smart device over to that because you've got to have the right smart device with your Bible software on there. And uh, go along with me on that. We're going to look at three issues that are reoccurring. These have already occurred. Three issues that reoccur in chapter 6 but are, are throughout Ecclesiastes. Issue number one, wealth that doesn't bring joy. Wealth that doesn't bring joy. Chapter 6, verse 1. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing that their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, even if he lives... 2,000 years, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place? I mean, that's what the question is. You see, life under the sun is not fair. You do not get to take it with you, and chances are you won't get to enjoy it or enjoy it all while you're here. That's what he's saying. Life's not fair about that. And Solomon's using hyperbole to emphasize a point. So whether you're a 2,000-year-old man or a stillborn baby, you're both going to end up in the same place under the sun. And we read about the sad stories. We see it in our world all the time, the lack of hope that's in our world. And even as Christians, sometimes it's, it's hard. See, we, we can get beat down by life. We can go through this. Uh, but we, we see this lack of hope. Now, I read uh, an article, it was a while back, but about like the first couple of winners of the lotto in the state of Colorado. And there was this article that was written a few years ago about it. And uh, these people uh, said it was the worst day of their life. Literally, that's what they said. It was the worst day of my life. I am more broke and more miserable than I ever was before I won that money. See, wealth isn't going to fix everything. It can't fix certain things. It might bring you physical comfort but it won't bring you joy. It won't bring you true contentment. And we see one miserable story after another from the rich and famous. Again, open up your browser, you know. We got to get some important news when we open up our browser. And so the first thing we read about is something that Khloe Kardashian said. <laughs> That's the person I want to gather wisdom from. You know, you know Chloe said... You know, start wearing tank tops. I've got to get on Amazon and start ordering tank tops, you know. It's crazy, you know, the, the things that you, you hear from the rich and famous, like they have something worthwhile to say. 
I see it over and over again. I, I can't get to a decent piece of news for five minutes because I actually want to read what Chloe has to say. No, no, no. Listen, we read recently or heard recently about the death of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, two people that you'd go, man, what happened? They seemed like they were really successful people doing well. And, and I don't know their struggles. I don't know all the other things that, that goes on. And I want to be very careful when you talk about suicide, especially, because so a lot of you have probably been impacted one way or another by a family member or a good friend, someone that's gone through that. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, and I mean no judgment when I say this and stuff. But my first question goes is, how did they lose that hope? How did they lose their hope as they were going through life that took them to that dark place? And uh, it's sad. It makes me sad to hear that. Listen, wealth that doesn't bring joy. There is nothing wrong with having wealth. But don't put your hope in it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Issue number two, work that doesn't bring satisfaction. Verse seven, everyone's toil is for their mouth. Yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eyes see than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You know, Solomon has just spoken about wealth, if you will, to, to what might be considered the rich or the wealthy in the world, people that have something, and, and he gives instruction on that. Now he talks about those who work. He, he says poor, but, you know, in that world, there's the rich and there was the poor. That's the way it broke down, the, the working people. Uh, the rich man can let his money work for him, but the poor man has to use his muscles if he and his family are going to eat. But even after all this labor, the appetite of neither one is fully satisfied. Warren Wiersbe continues to comment on this. He says this, why does a person eat so that he can add life, to, he can add years to his life? But what good is it for me to add years to my life if I don't add life to my years? How's your life so full of the joy and hope that God has given us? Add life to your years. Verse 9 could easily be translated, enjoy the little you have and don't waste your time dreaming about what you don't have. Okay, that's really what he's saying. Don't worry about what you don't have. You know, chances are he's not going to win the lotto. I know it's hard to believe. I've tried. I, I went all the way up to promising God I'd give him half. I thought it was reasonable. Apparently, he has no need for my half. Okay. Enjoy what you have. Jill and I are, we're in our 60s. We're in the golden years. Whoever thought of that nomer for getting old. Uh, but as we enter into the golden years, we're starting to deal with this issue of retirement or at least partial retirement, some kind of retirement that's going on and and so we're, we're trying to figure all this out and 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 um, a good friend of mine who's also a, a financial advisor for me has been helping me as i you know move towards that age and want to make sure we have the the, the uh, resources available to have a good life he he gave me some really great advice in a conversation that we had and he had just said to me bobby i, I talked to lots of clients and 
And here's what they, they do in my words. But, you know, basically, uh, they work hard and they, they want to retire, but they don't want to retire until they have enough. You've got to have enough. You don't want to give back your standard of living. You want to retire at the standard you are. And so they work hard and they work hard and they get older and older and they keep working and working because they want to retire at that standard. And by the time they get to that point of it's okay to retire, they're too old to do anything. You know, our world gets smaller as we get older. You young people are going, I don't get that, Bobby. That makes no sense to me. Trust me, you'll get it. Okay, our world gets smaller as we get older. And at some point in time, there's just not as much left. And Jill and I have really made that decision already. We know where we'd love to retire at. We might be down here somewhere, but we've made the decision. We're going to enjoy some things while we still can. Okay, and I'm not saying be irresponsible and go spend all your money now or any of that stuff, but there's a balance that you, uh, you can find, or at least I want to find, where I can enjoy life now. Okay, and anyway, I, I just got to talk to you about retirement anyway. My, my, my wife had surgery on her shoulder, and she's been on disability for two months. She couldn't work. She's just getting ready to go back to work, but so she's just been home. She can't do much. And I, I retired from, from vocational ministry, if you will, a couple of months ago and took this month off from doing all my fitness training everything because we've sold our house, we're downsizing, we're doing some different things. So I haven't worked, and my wife hasn't been working. And so we get up every morning and get a cup of coffee. Hey, hey, what are you going to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do today? I think I'll go play golf. Oh, okay. I mean, really? What? Uh, all of a sudden, I'm going, wait a minute. This is not, I, I'm not sure about this whole retirement thing, you know? Let's all just get up every day and uh, look at each other, okay? <laughs> huh. I mean, I have two, my two major conversations in this last month, my wife and my dog, okay? I talk to my dog more than I talk to most human beings. Okay, it's like, wait a minute, there's got to be something better than that. So as I think about retirement, that in and of itself um, motivates me to keep going a little bit. So I'm going to find that proper balance and keep it going. Listen, there's nothing wrong with working, nothing wrong with eating, nothing wrong with retiring at whatever level that is. But if our lives are only focused on those things, then we are being controlled by our appetites not living in hope. We're being controlled by our appetites. Don't put your hope in those things. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Issue number three, questions that are not answered. If you will, wisdom. All right, questions that are not answered. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named and what, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days, they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? What's the purpose at? What is done is done. God has made this world. Beauty, truth, lies, love, hate, sin, obedience, kindness, barbarism, grace. They're all a part of this world. This is the world that God has made. And we can't contend or dispute with him on that. That's what Solomon's saying. You can't contend with that. It's God's world. You can try if you want. You're not going to win that argument. He's the creator of it all. 
In verse 11, the futility of words is dealt with. We live in a world that has more explanations, uh, arguments for a point, definitions, and mindless blather. It just, it drives me crazy. My favorite of recent times has been to hear all, really all the professionals is the royal wedding. I mean, they, come on, did you catch any of that? They had all these these subject, these people that knew everything, you know, uh, this is why they do this this way, and this is why they do this way, and then they do this, and do you have your pinky up, or do you have your pinky down? I mean, I can't believe the stuff I heard, and what cracked me up the most is one of the guys on there was a guy from Pennsylvania that adopted a British accent and faked his way all the way through it, and the networks loved him. He's talking to the whole world about the royal family and everything else. The, the guy is Bruce from Pennsylvania. I mean, for crying out loud, he's the professional in this world? Oh, my gosh, it's just driving me crazy. But it's out there. There's blather everywhere. And are we any wiser for it? Do the important questions of life have any more clarity for us? That's my point. Do they have any more clarity? Solomon uh, um, reviews this conclusion in chapter 12, and he says, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Wish I knew that in seminary. <laughs> and finally in verse 12, no one knows what is coming except death. So make the best of the time you have. Life under the sun without God has no certainty. So don't place your hope in wisdom. Nothing wrong with wisdom, but it's not going to bring you joy. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So how do we respond to these three things? These, are these three of a few different things that Solomon comes back to again and again. Well, it depends on what you're betting on. How did you place that bet? We've looked at life without God as the centerpiece, but if you take Pascal's wager, then everything changes. First of all, enjoy your wealth. Enjoy the wealth that God's given you. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of life. The issue is when the things of life become our purpose for life. That's where we get in trouble with our wealth. Warren Wiersbe said this. This is great. To enjoy the gifts without the giver is idolatry. And this can never satisfy the human heart. Enjoyment without God is merely entertainment. It doesn't satisfy but enjoyment with God is enrichment, and it brings true joy and satisfaction. It's all right to have wealth. Don't feel bad about that. Whatever level wealth you have, that's okay. But don't forget who is the giver of that wealth. Wealth will never get you there. Absolutely promise you that. Paul, uh, Pastor Scott earlier during the offering, was talking in uh, Philippians. And just a little before that, Paul has started addressing this issue of the gifts he's been receiving from the people. And he says this, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live in almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Titus 3 says this. 
Oh, excuse me for a second there. I want to come back to this. Enjoy your, your, your wealth. Enjoy your work. There is nothing wrong with hard work and enjoying the fruits of that work. Just don't put your hope in it. Okay? Enjoy your wealth. Enjoy your work. Find things that you love to do and do them to your very best. Nothing wrong with that. Titus 3 said this. In the book of Titus, in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is actually admonishing these people a little bit because they've really slacked up. And, and, and he's speaking to Titus. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. What is a good work? I think it's any work you do that can bring glory to God. It's any work that you can do. It's not about the type of work. It's about the attitude of the worker. That's what it's all about. You can, do, you can bring glory to God in so many different ways. My, my friend who's been helping with, with my financials and my retirement, okay, he's in that wealth management. I don't know how to say it. Wealth building, wealth management, financial management, however those phrases all come together. He's in that business. And this is what I know about the guy. He loves Jesus. He loves his family. And he does his work at a very high level of integrity. It's not about the type of work that you could do. It's the attitude you have, the heart you have while you do it. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your wealth. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And finally, enjoy God. Enjoy God. That's wisdom. Wealth, work, and wisdom. You want true wisdom? Enjoy God. Psalm 34, 8. Well, one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that God is good. God wants you to enjoy him. Is life hard at times? Yes. Is it unfair at times? Yes. Absolutely. And whether you're a follower or not a follower, life isn't fair at times. I have not found that passage in the Bible that says once you become a believer, life will be fair. Haven't found it. Whether you are a believer or not, life offers uncertainty and unfairness. And I've had, I don't know, over the decades I was in ministry, I, just hundreds of conversations, I'm sure, with people who are wondering about those very things, asking those really hard questions. Okay, why does that happen? How come this happened to me? My, my brother passed away. He wasn't a believer. How could God do that? You know, what happened with my job? I, I was a good employee. I gave them my, my, my life. Now I'm an unemployed person. I got no, no prospects at my age to finish well. Why do all those things happen to us? Medical issues, all those different things. Listen, I'm not, I, I, I'm never a very good counselor. I, I don't know how to answer those questions. And I'm just honest enough to say, I, I don't know. I can't answer those under the sun. I can't do that. But here's what I do know. I've learned two things that stand out for me as the years have rolled by. One, God loves me. And God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God is 
love. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. God, his very essence is love. And we can't truly know and understand what love is until we experience the love of God. So much so that he sent his son. That, he loves us so much. John 3.16, that New Testament passage, that's a centerpiece for all of us uh, evangelicals that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we read, oh, God gave his son. We're, not, we're going to believe in him. We're not going to perish. We're going to have eternal life. That's all good. But it all falls apart without the first four words. For God so loved. That's the foundation for everything that comes after that. It's why he sent his son. It's God's love. The second thing I've learned is that God is incapable of doing wrong. And under the sun, that doesn't make any sense at all. We see so much wrong every day around the world in our city. We see wrong everywhere. Yet God is incapable of doing wrong. The problems with this world were developed by the fall. There are problems that we've brought on to ourselves. And God love still transcends all those. He's incapable of doing wrong. His very essence doesn't allow it. And therefore, God is trustworthy. He's incapable of doing wrong, and therefore he's trustworthy. God is love. He's capable of doing wrong. God is trustworthy. Around 1700, Joseph Addison wrote this. And I don't think he was a believer. The grand essentials to happiness in this life are something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. Let me tell you this. All of these find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's where we will find our fulfillment. The Protestant confession, if you will, the Westminster Confession that was written hundreds of years ago, it set the foundation for the Reformation Protestantism. It said this, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Wow. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So enjoy your wealth Enjoy your work. Enjoy God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You see, the question is not, when are we going to die? The question is, how are we going to live? And the answer to that depends on what you are betting on. That will drive everything. I'm going to invite the uh, band to come back out. And uh, in a moment, uh, we're going to sing a song. Anybody got any guess which song we're going to sing? <laughs> any couple thoughts on that? I've got a thought. And when we sing it, if that's where your hope is, I hope you'll sing it out loud. Let God know what you put your hope in. God, we give thanks to you for this opportunity uh, just to gather, to read through this amazing book that kind of drives me crazy in places, Lord, but I know what it's saying, and I know how much I want to sometimes just try and live under the sun and be in control of everything. But, Lord, we have to give it to you. Our hope is in you, Lord Jesus not in our wealth, not in our work, not in our wisdom. 
And that's such a better alternative. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love, for your sacrifice, and your grace, and what it means for all of us. We pray this in your name. Amen.